Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, glad you're here. Uh, I'm Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. I'm going to be in the fireside room. It's right through these glass doors and to the right. It'd be a, just a delight uh, for me to get to meet you and pray with you and hear your story. I uh, want you to feel at home here uh, at Windsor Road today. So, um, so. I was born in the 60s. If you were born in the 60s, you might appreciate Gary Larson, The Far Side. Anybody remember Gary Larson, The Far Side? Is there anybody? Am I the only one born in the 60s here? All right, now, good. So uh, I liked his cartoons because he just, you know, has a warped sense of humor. And that's, that says me. That's Randy, okay? So here's my favorite one. Uh, it's uh, Jeopardy. Uh, and there's God, and there's Norman, and the score is 1,065 to nothing, and the caption reads, that's right, the answer is Wisconsin, that's another 50 points for God, uh-oh, it looks like our current champion, Norman, hasn't even scored yet. <laughs> there you go. I just wanted to show that to you. <laughs> Actually, that's... That's, that's my sermon today. That it is. That's the point of what our passage of Scripture is about in our series over the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You'll find that on page 920 of your church Bibles. And we're going to look at a contest. A contest between two kings, the king of earth versus the king of heaven. Uh, God versus Norman. Well, Luke calls him Herod. And here's the point, by the way. The point, I'll just tell you the point right up, right up front. Those who oppose God lose. Those who are with God win. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But that's what we're going to read in this contest between two kings. King Herod, this false king of earth, and King Jesus. King Jesus, whose foremost representative in these verses is the apostle Peter. Here we go. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That's a total of 16. To guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, 
and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for them and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is God's word. Those who oppose God lose. And they lose big. And they lose 1,065 to nothing. And those who are with God win. That's what these verses are about here this morning. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem like God is winning, right? Especially at the first of this chapter here. At that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, who is this Herod in verse 1? Who, who is this guy anyway? Well, Her this is his full name is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great built the uh, temple in Jerusalem 
uh, Herod the Great built Masada and other huge construction projects uh, in Israel in the first century. Uh, he was a famed builder throughout the land, but he was an insecure and paranoid ruler, Herod the Great. Um, the grandpa. In fact, he was so paranoid that he murdered his son because he was afraid that his son was trying to, uh, to do a military coup. And so, so, and his son then was the father to Herod Agrippa I. Are you with me? Say yes. So he went to, he sent his son to Rome, his, his, his grandson to Rome, Herod Agrippa I, and that's where Herod Agrippa was reared, and that's where he was educated. And Herod Agrippa I became childhood buddies with Caligula. Now Caligula, years later, became the emperor of Rome. Now when your buddy becomes the emperor of Rome, that's potentially good for you. And it did turn out good for Herod Agrippa I because he sent Herod Agrippa I back to Grandpa's kingdom. So it really is who you know. And that's what we see here. And, uh, and, and, and Herod Agrippa I was, uh, wow, he was good. He was, when he was in Rome... He acted Roman. He used his Roman name. But when he was back in Israel, he was unified. He was the most pious, God-fearing Hebrew on the planet. In fact, one day in a religious ceremony there in Israel, Herod Agrippa I stood and read from the book of Deuteronomy. And when we got to a particular section in the book of Deuteronomy, he was so moved that he choked up with tears and was crying. And, and, and the, oh, and this just, you know, this just endeared him to the, the people. And, 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 and they started shouting out, we love you, brother. We love you, brother. We love you. He was good. And Herod saw that he could score political points by opposing Christianity. For the last 10 years, there had been relative peace in the city of Jerusalem. But right around the year AD 42, uh, Herod Agrippa realized that his political clout would go up with the culture, with the people, if he began to persecute the Christians. Thousands were following Christ, and the gospel was growing, but Herod lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. And he got a hold of one of the 12, one of the apostles, the apostle James, who was brother to the apostle John. And the scripture says that he executes him with the sword. That means it's a state-sponsored execution. The cultural landscape has shifted in just a few years. <laughs> didn't take very long. Remember back in Acts chapter 3 when that disabled man was miraculously healed and the religious leaders of the city didn't touch the Christians because the people were so amazed at this miracle of God. That was just a few years ago. Well, that support is long gone. And James has, in Herod's eyes, posed a threat to Israel's security and he's put to death and the culture has shifted 
Verse 3 says, and when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, you see, so, so the Apostle James was kind of a test case. See, he's not so famous that if people get upset, you know, it'll just be a small little uh, uh, bit of pushback. Uh, ah, but you know what? If it works, and it did, Herod's going after Peter now. He proceeded to arrest Peter also in verse 3. And his plan is to arrest Peter. And after the Passover, which is kind of their version of Independence Day, their national holiday, after the Passover... Herod's plan is to preside over a crooked and speedy trial and then execute him that day. That's what's going on. And that's why it says that Peter was put in prison four squads of soldiers. Each squad was four soldiers, and they rotated shifts. Maybe they had heard about an escape earlier that had happened in the book of Acts. He wanted to make sure this didn't happen again. Fat chance. Now then, let me just interrupt myself because I get this question. Why is God allowing this, Randy? I mean, you know, we've already read the end of the story, so we know Peter gets out, but why did God not deliver James as well? Why didn't he deliver both of them? And that's a good question. Uh, let me answer it this way. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the question, why does God let bad things happen? Sometimes the question assumes that this life is the best that God has to give us? What if it's not? What if to live is Christ, to die is gain? What if that's the best that God has for us? What if God's best for us is our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. What if that's God's best for us? You know, don't you, that if God wanted to, he could have taken out Herod at the beginning of chapter 12. He could have. But you see, God is looking for a, not just a defeat, but a particular kind of defeat. A defeat through weakness. A defeat through death, just like Jesus. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I mean, no, no student is greater than his teacher. I'm the teacher. And if they go after me, they're going to go after you. That's just the way it is. Well, you know, don't you, that if Jesus wanted to, Jesus could end the battle between ourselves and Satan. All Jesus would have to say if he wanted to was, Satan, go to hell. And he would. Because he is the king on high. And one day he will. But Jesus' intention is to have a particular kind of defeat of the evil one. A kind of defeat that will cause us not to simply follow him because he is all powerful. But desire him and love him and long for him because he is all satisfying. That's the kind of defeat that Jesus is looking for, and suffering is the only path for that to happen. Which is why, church family, Good Friday always precedes Resurrection Sunday, not the other way around. It's always been that way since our Lord himself. And that's why. That's why James was taken and Peter was spared. 20 years later, 
Peter will be taken, hung upside down on a cross for God's glory. But for now, he remains. Here's what I know, though. The apostle James, who witnessed Jesus' baptism, who was there throughout Jesus' ministry, teaching, healing, interacting with people. He was there throughout Jesus' crucifixion. He saw Jesus' resurrected body, heard Jesus' resurrected voice, shared meals with Jesus' resurrected uh, 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 life, was held by Jesus' resurrected arms. I can assure you that James was the last person to be disappointed by his death. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead, we will be with him. If you are with God, you are going to win. That's the good news. And our grief... Our grief is real, and our grief is not, is not hopeless. We don't, we don't grieve a hopeless grief. We grieve a hopeful grief because God wins, and those who are with God also win. Do you believe this? Yeah. Are you sure? Hey, good. Because sometimes it's, it's tough when the pressure's on. And, and that's what we see here in these verses. <laughs> Peter's in prison, and four squads are guarding him. And the night before, it says the church was pleading. You see that in verse 5? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. For Peter, Peter's in chains. He's, he's between two Guards, one on either side, two more at the door. He's not going anywhere, so they think. And then the night before Peter's trial, there he is. He's, I mean, it's, it's in the middle of the night, so it's already the next day. It's just not sunrise. He's going to die the next day. And look, what's, what's, what's Peter doing? Verse 6, sleeping. He just sawing logs, man. Between those two armies. He's snoring away, and suddenly, in the middle of deep rim, he gets a whacked on the side, right? Struck there on the side. Chains fall off, and, and there's a light, and, and there's an angel, and, 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 and he's just, come on, quick, get, get up, get up, get up. Well, Peter, you know, he's just kind of like, he's like, I would be at three in the morning, you know, and, 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 he, and he thinks he's having a vision. Right? Verse 9, he did not know that what was being done uh, by an a the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, I'm having a vision now. I'm having another vision now. All right, I'm supposed to die tomorrow, but I get a vision today. Isn't it a little late, Lord? What is this? Is this another sheet? Are, are there animals in it? Do you want me to get up? Is this kill and eat? Is this kind of a last meal sort of thing, God? And, and it's like the angel's going, would you be quiet and just put your clothes on? It's like his little boy. You see it? The angel's saying, dress yourself and put on your sandals, you know, a right shoe, left shoe, a right pant leg, put your coat on, breathe in, breathe out. It's kind of like he's getting dressed to go to church or something, you know? And finally, the cell door opens and they pass through the guard undetected. Don't ask me how. It's a miracle. And the iron gate leading into the city opens 
all by itself. And Angel is leading it. Peter follows, and they go down one street, and Peter looks back to see if he's being trailed. He, and he looks ahead, and then all of a sudden, the angel's gone. He's in the middle of the street. And Peter realizes this isn't a vision, this is really happening. Look at verse 11. We, Peter came to himself. And this was kind of like one of those scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz moments. Hmm. Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Dude, get out of the street before you get recaptured. What is your problem? And so he rushes to Mary's house. Who's Mary? Mary, the mother of Jesus? No. No, Mary, the mother of John Mark. John Mark. John Mark, the apostle? John? No. Another John Mark. I'm sorry for the confusion, but it is. John Mark, likely the Mark of the Gospel of Mark. And it's, so they're at his mom's place. And there's this spacious home, and the Christians are gathering. Many are praying for Peter. You see that? And she owns this huge home, and there's property surrounding, and, and it's surrounded by a wall. And in the wall is a door or a gate. And so Peter finds her place, and he starts beating on the door that's in the wall surrounding her home. Inside, there is this fervent prayer gathering in the middle of the night going on. Oh, God, please, would you deliver Peter? Please, 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 please release him. Release him. Bam, bam, bam. Please release him. Bam, bam. Rhoda, go get that. Rhoda is the servant girl. And verse 13 says, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So she runs out of the house into the courtyard up to the door the gate that's surrounding the property and she hears this voice let me in let me in sounds an awful lot like the apostle peter peter is that you yes we are let me in peter she squeals she is so excited she runs back inside and leaves him out in the street and and she goes in and 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 she says you know they're praying god and mary is you know managing the prayer gathering and uh, mary honey we're praying yeah but mary honey what is it well peter is outside oh he is not oh are you mad? Are you, are you mad? Oh, hon, don't be so hard on her. I mean, it's not sweetheart. It's probably just his angel. You are such a sweet little girl. Verse 15. You, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. She kept insisting. They kept saying. And Peter kept knocking. She kept insisting. They kept saying. Peter kept. He is outside the door of the gate and he wants in. Okay, honey, we'll go see. This is what happens when we let children in the adult service. They just distract everything, you know. And so they finally go out. They open the door and they saw Peter and they were amazed. Peter, they're all squealing. Would you be quiet before the guards hear us? Let me in. Verse 17 says, He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, now remember, it's the Passover. This is Exodus talk. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Parallels how the Lord had brought Peter out of prison. And then Peter says, Tell these things to James... And the brothers, James. Now, not the James who was just killed. Another James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, whom we will meet in Acts 15, and who has given us the letter of James, 
later on in the New Testament. So. I really believe this happened. I really do. You know why I do? Um, write down in your notes one word. It's the word embarrassment. Embarrassment. Uh, it's, it's called the criteria of embarrassment. And here's what I mean by that. If Luke, who gave us the book of Acts, was trying to write a fictional story to strengthen the faith of us, he would not have included this. What if? I mean, think about all of the irony here that's going on here. You know, Peter doesn't think that what's happening to him is real. Um, while the iron gate to the city opens by itself, Peter can't even get into the gate of Mary's house. Christians, Christians are praying fervently for Peter, but they refuse to believe that their prayers have been answered, and they strand Peter outside. And then Rhoda, little servant girl, announces that the church's prayers have been answered. The church says, you're crazy. And then when they finally open the gate to see Peter, well, they're, they're most amazed. See? But it's all sort of slapstick. And it really doesn't flatter the church. And I'm comforted by that. Because, you see, no one possesses a perfect faith. Isn't that what we're seeing here? The book of Acts is not about the fearless exploits of heroes and heroines. Instead, you know, one minute they're believing and one minute they're not. And the next minute it's kind of half and half. And, you know, ask me at 2 o'clock how my faith is. You know, it'll change from when it's 5. And, and the book of Acts is about, all, all through that, Jesus is acting in and through his people. Again, to show his glory through their weakness. Wow. And they're learning, they're learning through it all, that ultimate power is not the power from below, but the power from on high. It's not the power of the vote. It's not the power of politics. It's not the power of the lobby. It's not the power of possession. Ours is the power of prayer. And we may hope for something more spectacular against the unjust acts of Herod, but no, Peter is prayed for, and he sleeps. And Herod will end up like James, but we don't know that. It's up to God. So are you willing to trust God when you don't know what he's up to? Are you willing to trust God when all evidence suggests otherwise? That's what we're looking at. And prayer affirms that the ways of God are better than the ways of Herod. So, you know, do you believe this? Or do you sometimes feel that when you come to worship or small group or prayer time, you're not sure that God's there or you're kind of sort of sheepishly thinking, well, you know, let's come on, it can't hurt. Or, or, or we do pray, you know, God, if it be your will. But we pray that with a kind of tone that sounds like we really don't believe he can. And as a result, our faith becomes a sentimental thing where we say to little girls like Rhoda, yeah, sweetheart, dogs and cats, they do go to heaven. Now run along. And there's no teeth to what we believe. And we sort of gum our spiritual food down. And you may say, well, you know, pastor, that may be easy for you behind your safe pulpit, but if I live that way, 
they would take my head off. And you know what? You're right. If you lived like this, your head might come off or your hand might be led out of an otherwise inescapable prison by an angel of God. Both stories, by the way, both of those scenarios are in this room right here, right now. You've let me into your lives too much for me to know otherwise. Well, about a year later, after this commotion and after the execution of the guards, Herod goes up to Caesarea and he gave an official state speech. He liked Caesarea better because it was, it, was it was a coastal town on the Mediterranean. It was beautiful. Uh, that's what it as artist rendition of what it looked like, that there was a man-made harbor and ships would come in. I mean, it was glorious. It was. You can actually go to Caesarea today and you can see the archaeological remains of that once beautiful and fabulous city. And there's also an amphitheater there that uh, is on the next slide. And that amphitheater is important because what happens in verses 20 through 23 um, occurred in this amphitheater. This account is substantiated by the first century non-Christian historian Josephus. He tells about how Herod was in Caesarea, and he gave a state speech there in that amphitheater. Apparently, there had been a conflict between Herod and the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are even further north of Caesarea. They had had a squabble, and Herod took offense and would not sell them food, and they starved. And so these cities wanted to make nice with Herod. So there was this peacemaking ceremony complete with games, and they met in this amphitheater. And verse 21 says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And now Josephus says, really interesting, that Herod's royal robes were silver. And so they glistened in the sun there. And he gave this speech before the crowds. And at the conclusion of his speech, verse 22 says, the crowds chanted, This is the voice of a God and not a man. This is the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod did not deny this. Herod did not say what Peter had said to the Roman centurion Cornelius a few chapters ago. I'm just a man like you. Herod's response was more or less, oh, how nice of you to notice. The scripture says that immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down. By the way, that word struck is the same word that's used for when the angel struck Peter in verse 7. I just think he hit him harder. (laughs) And Luke, the physician, is pretty grisly. Luke the physician says that in 
intestinal worms chewed him up from the inside out. And five days later, Herod Agrippa I breathed his last. He died a miserable, painful death. God is not nice to those who try to play God. And his punishment can be quick and ruthless. And that's a good thing when you think about it. Can you imagine a world where the Herods get to go free? Can you imagine a world where the Herods are never held accountable? A world where their inflated egos inflate more and more and more and, and where the innocent are executed and the hungry grow hungry? Can you imagine such a world? God cannot. And so in a world of systematic injustice and bullying and violence and arrogance and oppression, the thought of the day that the Herods are finally and firmly put in their place and the innocent and the weak are at last given their due, this is the best news that there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a good God must be a God of justice and judgment. And that's why by the end of Acts chapter 12, there's a reversal, isn't there? You know, at first, Herod's on the move, advancing, arresting, annihilating. But by the end of the chapter, he is on his knees, puking his way to his demise. At the beginning of Acts 12, James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is person of the year. And at the end of Acts 12, Herod's gone Peter is freed, and look, look, did you catch verse 24? It immediately follows verse 23. But the word of God increased and multiplied. <laughs> Eaten by worms and breathed his last is purposely set against the glory of the word of God increasing and multiplying. Can the point be any clearer, church? Those who oppose God lose. Those who are with God win, and they win big, 1,065 to nothing. And you may feel small in your Roman Empire, and you may feel overrun by your Herod, and you may panic when a high-capacity leader dies from a political madman, but you stay with Jesus, and you stay with him, you'll win. But you oppose him, you'll lose. That's the message. Now, which side are you on? Whose side are you on? And, and do our lives show that? Do our prayers show that? This is a political issue in the purest sense of the word. In the purest sense of the word, this is a political issue. Um, politics, from the Greek word Polis, a word that means city. And in the classical sense, the Greeks believed that your polis, your city, was where you turned to first and most to seek your security and your identity. Now, where do you turn to first and most to seek your security and identity? Is it from below or is it from on high? 
Is it, is it your stuff? Is it your work? Your children? Is it the government? Really? And I, if I find myself becoming too giddy or too glum or too vexed or too victorious about what's going on in Washington, then that's a clue that I'm seeking my security and my identity in the wrong polis. It's clear to me that we do not have moral leadership in the highest levels of our national government. And I truly wish that our leader reminded me more of George Washington and less of King Herod. What I need to do with that is pray. Pray as fervently as these believers did. And what I need to do with that is pray for a changed heart. What I need to do is believe Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. And the fact of the matter is, the reason why I'm standing behind this pulpit is because my heart was turned. And I'm here because godly people prayed for me. At my baptism in my home church, my minister looked out just before he baptized me. And there were my parents, and they were on steps just like this, looking up at the baptistry, and they were kneeling in prayer for me and my brothers. In what city are you seeking your security and identity? Hebrews 11.10 says that the patriarch Abraham Walked by faith, it says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Does your city have foundations? Only if it's God. And if it doesn't have foundations, you got the wrong city. The city of God is ruled by a loving king whose body glistened not in silver, but with blood whose head was crowned not with gold but with thorns. Our king did not deliver an eloquent speech, but yet he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And our king did not ask his subjects to die for him. Rather, he gave his life for them. And his death was not swift from a sword but it was torturously slow on a cross. And while he hung there, the Roman who put him there cried out, surely this man is the Son of God. And he is the Son of God. For I tell you, his body was not eaten by worms, but it was raised to life by the almighty power of his heavenly Father. And so with the apostle Paul, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for all of us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of high honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus is above every ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but the world to come. And the church... This church 
this congregation, this embassy of heaven, we belong to him. We are his body. And we are under his authority. And he has had over all things for our benefit, made full and complete by him, our king, who fills all things everywhere with himself. And the reason we win is because he's already won. Do you believe this?